Nehemiah chapter 6, we pick up where we left off last time at verse 15. Last week we were looking at when your enemies want to become your friends. We saw that God has a process of repentance and he doesn't cut it short for himself. And since we are to follow his example, we shouldn't cut it short either. The process is in bearing fruits of repentance. And we spent some time on that last week. Without them, you cannot short-circuit anyone's repentance toward God as it has not yet begun. So sometimes we think that if we're not kind to people who've been our enemies, been against us, if we aren't friendly to them when they decide they want to be friends, that we might short-circuit their repentance toward God. But if they have not actually started the process, we aren't short-circuiting anything. They're just trying to do as they did here with Nehemiah, trying to get on your good side so that they can take you down that way. So verse 15 here in Nehemiah, we're looking today at how we're making the transition in Jerusalem from building the walls to guarding the city. Before, they had nothing of value. Now they're going to have some things that have some value in there and people are going to want to get inside. So we need to learn to guard Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52, in 52 days and it happened when our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived this, that this work was done by our God. Now there's a possibility that when he writes in here the 52 days he may not mean the entire process of building the wall. If you remember, when we were going through it, there was a break there of a couple of days. He may mean 52 days from that break. He may mean 52 days in its, in, in its entirety from the day they started to work on it. But we know the whole process actually took longer than this because he was four months waiting for the king to either return from wherever he was to be able to go over it with him. And during that time, he was praying, then getting all the things ready, and then the three around a three-month journey to get over to Jerusalem from Babylon. So it, it took a lot longer than the 52 days for that. But we're just looking at the days they were actually building. If you look at the wall, and if you make a generous estimate that the city wall was about four miles around, then that is being generous. It probably was not quite that much. I see, saw some folks that uh, broke this down. If there were 42 groups, which is what we spent time on looking at the different groups that were there, each group would average around 168 yards apiece that they would completely do, which would be about three or four yards a day. So it's not too outlandish, and that's accounting for Sabbath days and uh, events like that. Now, as we looked at that, and we remember the map that we had put up there, the groups are not even. Some groups had a bigger section of the wall, and some had a smaller section of the wall. Some groups were large in number, and some were not. But anyway, this is what we have for this. There's really no reason to doubt Nehemiah at 52 days, whether it be for the entire process of building the wall, from the laying of the fixing of the first stone, or from when the break was, until 52 days was completed. Whichever one it was, it still is a very short time to fix the wall. When you think of the fact that the wall has been in disrepair for 100 years, a little over 100 years, that's over a hundred years of looking at a wall broken down and not doing anything about it. Just letting it sit there and walking around it. Some areas we know from Nehemiah when he took his tour, he couldn't even go through. He had to uh, bypass the gates that were there. 
too much debris. Couldn't get a couldn't get around it, and that had stayed that way all this particular time. Now repair always takes longer than breaking something down. This wall was broken down within a, a day or two when Rome came through. Or, um, sorry, not Rome. Rome comes through here and does this later on. But when Babylon came through, they surely broke this down a lot shorter time than 52 days. But building something always takes longer than tearing it down. But the world around the city of Jerusalem, as well as the enemies, they all took notice that this was done. It said they became disheartened. Now I wonder, was it because they oppo- the, the opposition failed? They put opposition, they tried their best ways to get this thing to stop. Are they disheartened because what they tried to do failed? Are they dis- dishired, uh, disheartened because they had such a great desire to not see it built? And really, when you think of it, what does it matter? It doesn't take anything away from the city that they live in or the place where they are if you build Jerusalem. Were they disheartened because God and the people of God succeeded? There's a lot of people get disheartened when God succeeds or the people of God succeed. Were they disheartened because God's nation is being restored? And we know people just don't like to see God's nation restored. I know the maps are becoming popular now that the the war has been going on over there in Israel. But they have popped up many times before when you look at all the land that the Arab nations have and that little tiny bit that the Jewish nation has. And yet they're all saying it's unfair, we need to have that too. Are they disheartened because God showed himself to be God? I always like that song that Raymond did, God is God and always will be God. The world gets disheartened when God shows up and shows that he's God. They just show who they who they are. I asked this question, do our enemies deserve our sympathy? Well, they're becoming disheartened. They're kind of down a little bit. And sometimes you will notice that the church will a lot of times soften towards their enemies once the victory has been won. We kind of back down a little bit and we think, ah, oh, you know, we don't want to pile on too much. They, uh, they already lost. And uh, hogwash. God doesn't do that. Go through the Old Testament and you find out when God scored a victory, he took it to the end. He doesn't, uh, does, in fact, he got mad at a couple of uh, kings because they didn't take it to the end. They kind of had mercy on them and kind of backed off a little bit. Don't back off your enemies. They're backing off. More than likely, they're backing off because they're trying to regroup to come get you again. You don't need to have sympathy. Again, if your enemies want to become your friends, look for fruits of repentance. If it's not there, it's not, if you don't see the fruits, then the repentance is not there. And what they're doing is they're snowing you. They're faking you out. Don't do it. Stay with it. Keep your, keep the pedal to the metal, as they say, and just keep going for the victory. You don't need to stop. None of these uh, sympathy rules, sometimes they, they feel like, you know, in, in sports, well, if you get up on them too much, then you just need to stop. And, um, uh, no, they're not going to stop. If you stop trying to score, they're going to try and score themselves and see if they can get a little close. Nope, until you see those fruits of repentance, don't stop. So they may be becoming disheartened, and maybe if we say, oh, maybe we've shown some kindness here, then they'll be kind to us. You got Don't underestimate the world. They, If they yield to the forces of darkness, they are evil through. 
and they will pretend to be good just to get you to stop so they can do that. We've seen that constantly with Israel and the neighbors they have now, not not in the Old Testament, New Testament. We're talking the neighbors they have now, Hamas and, and so forth. Uh, the only time they soften is when they want to try and regroup and get more missiles and more tanks and more weapons. And then they come after them again. And you would think that they would let that go, but they don't. You wonder why do people who have no gain or hurt become affected by the things that benefit the kingdom of God? Why is that? Why do they care? It doesn't, it doesn't affect them at all. It doesn't change anything with them. Remember Paul, he would go into a city and he would preach the gospel and people would get mad at him. We don't want this gospel. And so he would leave and he'd go on to another city and they would get so mad they would, they would pursue him to the next city. We're going to make sure that you can't do it here. What's the matter? It's not affecting you over there in your city. Paul's already left your city. He's going over here. Why do you have to follow him? Why do they have to follow you and make trouble where you are? That's just the way darkness works. They are not content with being evil themselves. They want others to be brought into the same evil that they are. So they perceived that this work was being done by God. Well, maybe they say, how else could it have succeeded? Maybe they're upset because, well, uh, we didn't know we were against God. We didn't know we were against the God. But now they surely are aware of that. Verse 17, And in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. So this is going on now in those days. This is the days where Nehemiah is here, and Nehemiah is working on this, and probably even in the days before that. What he's telling you, is during all this time, the nobles that he is trying to lead the charge into building the wall, all this while have been corresponding with Tobiah, the enemy. They've been sending letters back and forth to each other. He said in verse 18, For many in Judah were pledged to him. That would kind of means that they had some kind of business dealings. They, maybe they were in debt to him. Uh, maybe they owed him something for what they were involved with. I don't know exactly what it was, but somehow there was a bond that was there between them and this person who was the enemy of the things of God. Be careful who you get pledged to, who you get bonded with. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Barakiah. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobias sent letters to frighten me. So these nobles that it seemed to be on the side of Nehemiah, and they actually probably are talking to him, like we're on the side, we're, we're looking to build this. And in fact, we'll get this in a, in a minute. One of them is actually one of the ones working on the wall. We know that for a fact because it's listed. But they're sending letters back and forth to this enemy and the guy who has been the enemy, Nehemiah, has made it very clear he is against us. He is trying to stop our work. We've had to carry weapons while we're building the wall. We've had to set up watch uh, towers and people to be watching out for if the attack might come. People were in fear. The work even stopped for a couple of days, it seemed. And in verse 19, it said, They also reported his good deeds before me. So they're trying to say, Hey, this Tobiah guy's not so bad. He's all right. Look at the good things that he's done here. 
Uh, no, he's against the things of God. He is not helping the cause of God. He's not on God's side. Don't tell me about the good things that he's done. Nehemiah won't hear it. But they're coming in there, they're trying to say these things, and they're probably saying real good things to Nehemiah. You know, we really appreciate you, like the work that you're doing. And then they're writing letters back to Tobiah, probably telling him, uh, you know, Nehemiah, he's just unreasonable, putting Nehemiah down. I mean, he's, he, they're not praising Nehemiah to him, but they are praising Tobiah to Nehemiah. Because they're pledged to him. They don't have that same pledge to Nehemiah. They're, they don't depend on him for their business, for whatever else is, is going on. So they keep coming into him and they're telling all these good things that he's doing. And then Nehemiah sees the bad stuff that's going on and he may talk about it and, uh, you know, let's just see if we can work this out. We'll, we'll try and, uh, you know, have a meeting with him and see if we can straighten all this stuff out. Because they want to preserve their business arrangements. They want to preserve the things that they have going on there. So all this correspondence is going on while the wall project is, is happening. They are talking with the enemy of the one who is building the wall. We still do this today. There's many uh, theologians, ministers. They'll talk with people in the world. They'll pr- pretend like they're on their side or they're not so bad or they're nice. I mean, look at the good things that they've done. Maybe if we just soften the gospel a little bit over here, we'll be able to pull them in and uh, get them into the kingdom. And yeah, that's how compromises come around. This is the same, same kind of thing that's going on there. So they're not sending letters to rebuke Tobiah or to get him to back off because there's arrangements there. There's business arrangements. There's family ties that are there. These things, this amazes me, these things move them more than God. These business ties, these family ties that they had fallen into, they move them more than the Word of God. And they love that they should have for the people of God instead of that moving them these other things do we got to be careful of the things that move us we can't be pledged we can't be holding ties to people that are entrenched in the world we have to be willing to separate that well they're like many Christians today they're moved by things that benefit themselves over things that benefit others we have a word for this in the English language it's called selfishness I am more concerned with the things that benefit me than the things that benefit the kingdom of God and the things that benefit the other people. Even though this wall would help them out in their city, help their businesses out, help many things out in their city, they're still teaming up with the guy who's against the wall. And it said that he had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Now he's one of the builders on the wall. Nehemiah 3, 4 uh, right in the middle of the verse, it said, Next to them was Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabah. They're making repairs. They're working on a section of the wall. And it's saying right there, they're one of the ones. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's probably other ones in there as well, because this is the nobles. This is the leaders of the, the group. Put this in your outline for you. So there are a number of people trying to serve two masters. They're trying to serve God, his man, Nehemiah, and trying to keep the service going on with Tobiah. Remember what Jesus taught about serving two masters. 
It's not going to work. Eventually, you're going to hate one, love the other. And we can kind of see which side they were falling on. Because they're building up Tobiah, but probably tearing down Nehemiah. Let's go on to chapter 7. So it was, when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Now, Hananiah was Nehemiah's brother. As he calls him his brethren. It seems like that's his brother. He's also the one who first told him of the conditions in Jerusalem. That goes back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. He has shown concern for the city, a love for the city, love for the things of God. And he also has initiative to make some things happen. That would seem to be a good choice for governor. It's not just a family thing. Sometimes we look at that and say, well, he just did that because it's his brother. Well, look at all the concern. Look at all the things that he's done. He's made the trip all the way over to where Nehemiah was in the uh, land of Babylon, land of Persia, and came all the way back and has been standing up with all these things that Nehemiah has been doing. He has a love for the city. He has a love for the things of God. He's a good choice for it. And it also says that Hananiah would be co-leader. Now, you remember that, may remember that name. Uh, he is one of the three Hebrews who was thrown into the fiery furnace. I believe the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him was Shadrach. And with all those nobles that have enemy ties, it is also wise to choose one you know does not have that compromising position. Since you got all those nobles in there and they seem to have ties, you may not be sure who does and who doesn't. Well, I know that he does not have any ties with Tobiah. So let's make sure we put him in. Because you put in a governor who has ties to Tobiah, and Tobiah can get his hands in there. you got a walled city up there. don't want to make any difference. He's still going to get in there and, and do what he wants to do. And we don't want to see that happen. So he selects him. And as a co-regent, Hananiah will be, be there with him as well. Verse 3, And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So he's trying to change this thing up. Now, it would seem that what he says, Don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, that this is an alter, alteration from the norm. That the norm would be to open them sooner. He's saying wait until later. I can't tell you all the reasons why. Maybe by the time the sun is hot, if anybody was lurking in their armor and uh, waiting to come into the city, uh, it would be more uncomfortable for them if they had to wait until the, the sun was hot. If you opened it up in the cool of the morning when the first sun first came up, maybe it would be easier for them to do that. I don't know. He doesn't tell what his reasoning is, but it does seem like it's out of the norm. And so he's getting them to do something out of the norm. Now, this this is a lot to throw out them. First off, we're taking a city that was never guarded, and now we're going to put a guard on it. We had a city without a wall. Now we got a city with a wall. Now we got to have guards on that particular city. And we're not going to do the normal thing that most people do that open the gates when the sun comes up or when there's enough light out there to, to warrant opening the gates. We're going to wait until the sun is hot, and then we're going to open it. So don't do it. And while that's all going on, make sure that there's guards. 
you got to get rid of this attitude that you've had before. The city has been open. Let's just let whoever in is, is there. No, we've, we've got a wall now. We've got gates. You've got to make sure that when you open those gates, you've got guards there because people might want to be trying to get in. You want to make sure that you can guard against it. So he's trying to ch- change this mentality into one that has something to guard. Now, this is probably not a convenient policy, waiting until then to open the gates. Fully now open doesn't mean you can't get in or out. It means the gates are not open. So if you wanted to get out, then you had to come there. This is my supposition, anyway. You'd have to come to the gate. Maybe you had to state your reason for it, and uh, they had to get guards up. So it's, it's a process, and it's probably not one they'd want to do a whole lot, so they'd want you to wait until, just wait until the gates are opened up. But if there was an emergency, I'm sure that there's a way that you, you could get out. As with anything, there'll be those who see no need for it. We don't need to do this. We didn't have any walls at all before. Now you're going to make us stay in the city until the sun is hot. We can't get outside to do the things we need to do. What if we want to farm the fields that are out there? Now we've got to wait until it's hot to get on out there and to do all this stuff. So there's going to be some people that are going to be disgruntled. You all know that. No matter what group you got, people will always find a way to be disgruntled. might be something that Nehemiah just got in his spirit. In his spirit... God said, you need, this is what you need to do. It's not a popular move, but Nehemiah is never moved by popular opinion. He will do whatever God is, has said to do. So again, we need to go from living with a disrepaired city for over 100 years. Not, not everybody has been in here for 100 years, but for as long as they have been there, the city has been in disrepair. There's no gates, there's no walls. And now we're going to into an all-out effort to build it. And after the building has been done, now we need to post guards and have gate policies. We never had gate policies. We never had guards. We never had people who had to stand guard. Now you're telling me I got to stand guard? I don't even get paid for this. I got to take a certain amount of watch and, and head on out there. I don't know if they were watching every night. If they had two or three hours every night and somebody else would come up and relieve them. Don't know how they did it, but it's obviously inconvenient. We didn't do this before, now we're doing it now. So we've got to take some time that we were resting, we were relaxing, we were enjoying ourselves, we were working, whatever it might be, and now we have to spend time watching. They may not be too keen on that. Well, we went from a place of being in disrepair and when you have something in disrepair, there's no way to allow stop things from getting in. Well, there's nothing really of value you're going to have on the inside. Because you can't really stop anybody from, from coming inside. If you're like me, uh, I love watching the videos of uh, people who go through abandoned houses. And they, I don't know why people abandon them, but you know, there's these mansions, there's these castles, there's these big boat places. Some of them are just small houses, but whatever it might be. Um, people have left them and abandoned them. And every once in a while you find some that have been untouched and there's some real valuable things on the inside. Other times people have already found it and they have gone through and they've taken all the valuables out and they've trashed the place and the place looks terrible. If you want to have something of value, you generally have to keep it locked up. You've got to have some kind of security. So if you want to have a city that is beautiful, desired, then you have to have a wall. You have to have a guard. This is how they worked in these days. A wall around the city doesn't help now, but it certainly helped in their days. You don't need all that in an open city. We don't need to have guards because there's really nothing to guard. 
but we want to change Jerusalem. We want to change how people look at Jerusalem. We want to change how we look at Jerusalem. We don't want to see it anymore as a broken down place. We want to see it as something restored, valuable. Eventually, once we get to that spot, we want to make it beautiful. We want to make it to be a place that's sought after. Nehemiah had to get people to see the value in giving effort for something that up till now they have not needed. That is a tough thing to do. You can see why he might want to pass on some of the day-to-day business because he's got to pass this vision on. Now, Christians, we have a similar situation. Christians, when we are, when before we were born again, when we were unsaved, we were broken down and we had nothing of spiritual value. There was nothing of spiritual value at all. When we got saved, we began the process of restoration, building something of our lives, but we still really had nothing of value. When you first got saved, you had very little of value. You had the faith that God put in you, and there had some, some value there, but really there was not a whole lot of value in you. You still acted like the world. You still acted like your sinful self before. But then we begin to encounter growth. And as we grow spiritually, we begin to gain knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And as we walk in those things, we gain some valuable spiritual assets. We gain joy. We gain peace. We gain faith. We gain love. We gain a lot of things that have a a lot of spiritual value. As we continue to grow and as this continues to occur, we become what the Word of God tells us is separated. There's a time that Paul and Barnabas were separated for the call. The call was on their lives. God even... Uh, Jesus even made mention of it when Paul was on the road to Damascus. Made mention of the call. That call was there, but he was not ready for it. We had to get some growth going on in, in Paul and the spiritual things. He spent some time and did that. A lot of years. When we're separated, our calling, which is a valuable thing, we don't walk in it right away. But as we have grown and we have secured some valuable spiritual assets... Well, we can become separated and we can begin to walk in that calling. And that has some great spiritual value. You all can understand certainly that Paul, when he teamed up with Barnabas, had much more value to the kingdom than Paul on the road to Damascus. Then Paul let down in the basket outside of the city of Damascus. Once he had that calling on him, Boy, I tell you, he could go into a city and just disrupt the whole thing and miracles would go on and the devil was just flailing. He didn't know what to do with this guy. Peter did the same thing. John, same thing. Others. Because value came. Now we have things of spiritual value and the enemy is going to look to steal them. We need to learn how to guard what we have because what we have is now vital. It's valuable. It's important that we learn how to guard these things. So, I want to spend the rest of our time here on this. When we have things of value, we have to learn to protect them. And I spent some time thinking on these. There are three methods that we use to protect the things of value. These three methods are used in the Word of God and these three methods are used in a daily basis. These are not super spiritual principles, but these are three things that I think you'll agree when we get through it. These are ways that we protect the things that we have that are valuable. 
And these are things that in the Word of God, God uses to protect the things that are valuable. So the first thing is the easiest thing. Hidden. The first way to protect something of value is to hide it. What do they tell you to do about the things, your items in your car? Hide them. If you got something of value in your car, hide it. Put it under a blanket. Put it in the back seat. Put it in the trunk. Put it someplace where it's out of sight. Because if people see something of value in your car, what do they want to do? They want to break it and take it. So the first thing, first line of defense, the easiest thing to do is hide the thing. Get it hidden. Get it concealed. Some example, I'll give you an example of this in the Word. Remember Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine? No, that once you put it out there, oh, we can see this. They're just going to trample it. They don't see it as valuable as, as you. If somebody steals something out of your car that you consider to be valued, they're going to sell it for something far less valuable than you say, that you see it as valuable to you. It has far greater value to you than what they will sell it for. They don't care. They got it for free. Whatever they can sell it for. It may have cost you a $1,000. It may have information with it or... Uh, because of how you use it, it may have value that exceeds that. They may sell it for a hundred. Now, what are some of the things? Why are some things hidden? Well, for, this this is from the spiritual standpoint. Why would God hide things? Why would God use that as a way of maintaining things of value? First off, God would hide things because He has not finished revealing them to me, or I may hide it. I may hide, I, I may not bring out something that God is putting in me. I may hide it because God's not finished revealing it to me. I don't know the whole thing yet. Remember Peter on the rooftop vision? He saw it, but he didn't understand it. He's still trying to process it. It's not really something that he can share with anybody yet because he's not quite sure. When he gets over there to Joppa, he then begins to have some understanding of what this is. And so then he begins to share it with them. He says, you know, I wouldn't have even come except I had this vision. So he got some understanding of it. But God was not finished revealing it to him. Remember, uh, Daniel with some of the visions that he saw. He, he had to spend some time trying to understand what does this mean? He's not ready to reveal it because he doesn't understand it yet. Now, some of the reasons that you would hide something is that, first off, no one else can find it. But I know where to retrieve it. And you can retrieve it pretty well. In fact, it's, it's the easiest way to access something that you're trying to protect is just to hide it. If it's just hidden, how many people have a, a key to their house hidden somewhere around their house? You know where it is. You hid it. But you can get at it really quick because you know where it's hidden. Of course, a lot of people like to hide it under the mat. Everybody hides it under the mat. So since you know everybody hides it under the mat, you may be going out there, let's find another place. Let's find something else that we can hide it. So it may not even be by the door. It may be someplace uh, that somebody won't go to right away. But you can go to it. You know it's hidden. You go right to it. It's not hidden for you because you know exactly where it is. You hide some things because they are difficult to secure. Difficult to guard, and you need quick access to them. So we just hide it. If you're going on a trip, 
you may have a, a secret pocket and you just hide whatever it is that you need, your identification, your wallet, uh, whatever it might be. You just put it there and it's hidden. You don't need to lock it up in a bag. You got to undo the combination to get all that stuff out. No, we if we go through security, I got to be able to access my uh, passport, my ID, my uh, whatever it is I'm I'm bringing in there. I got to be able to access it. So you just have it hidden somewhere. You know, I think guys have it easy. We got these extra pockets on. You know, they'll put these extra zipper pockets in there, and you can put it in there. It's right there, right there where you can get it, but no one else can see it, so they don't know to to come over there and, and to take it. In Psalms 119, verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We hide his word in our heart. Now, what happens is something that we've hidden, but don't look at it for a while. Maybe some of you have done that. Did you ever hide something? And uh, it was important. You want to be able to access it, but you, you hid it somewhere. And then you haven't gone after it for a while, and then you suddenly remember, oh, wait a minute, I hid that thing. Where did I hide it at? And see, now it's secured from you because you can't find it. Because <laughs> it's hidden, but you don't know where it is. You need, to, you need to access it on a regular basis. So I've got I to gotta keep going after it. We hide, we hide the word in our heart. We've got to keep going over it. We've got to keep going over it and over it. It's in me. But I can access it right away. I don't have to undo any kind of security locks. As soon as I need it, it's right there. These are things that we need near us, but we hide them. We hide them so that people outside can't alter them, can't change them, can't steal it from us. Now, again, we we said before, some of the reasons that a thing is hidden is God's not finished revealing it to me. I don't have the complete understanding of the thing yet. Another reason... That it's hidden, it's, it's not time yet. Remember John in the book of Revelation? Don't, not, don't write that down. It's not time for that one yet. When the three men went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus told them, don't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection. It's not time yet. There are some things that God will tell you, but he wants you to hide them because it's not time yet. It will be time, but it's not time yet. Uh, maybe it's just not for other people. It's just for helping your understanding. Remember, God spoke to Moses up on the mountain. How long did God spoke to speak to Moses up on the mountain for? Anybody remember? Forty days. Then he went up a second time, didn't he? Forty days. God spent eighty days talking with Moses. How much of that conversation do we have? We don't have a whole lot of that conversation, do we? Why didn't Moses ever tell us about the conversation? Apparently it wasn't for everybody else to hear. Sometimes God will share things with you that are not for other people. It's just for you. Sometimes it's just not time to reveal it yet. Sometimes it's just not finished. Just keep it hidden for a little while longer. Get the full understanding of it. Paul was taken up into heaven and told and explained all kinds of mysteries. How much of that conversation do we know? Don't have a whole lot. I remember Brother Hagin was sharing with us that one of the, he didn't say this with all of them, but there's one particular one 
that the conversation he had with Jesus lasted an hour and a half. And he was, some of his times, if you've heard some of his teaching on, on this, when he gets into that particular vision, that particular uh, time that he had with, with God, and I believe that was when he was in the hospital room, he says, I've never told everyone the whole thing. I've given little bits and pieces of it here. He says, well, you can't really, because it was an hour and a half, and, and it takes you longer than an hour and a half to explain what you heard in an hour and a half. So he said, there's no way that you can just sit down one time and, and tell everybody about it. But he said, there's parts of that conversation he's never revealed, he's never told of before. And maybe he was never intended to. Maybe it was just for him. Some things are hidden because they're not for everybody. Some of them are just for you. And God may be speaking some of these things to you. And if he does, he needs to know, if I tell you this, can you keep it hidden? It's just for you. Can you keep it hidden because you're not finished understanding it yet? Can you keep it hidden because it's not time yet? I don't know, if you, if you were Jesus, would you have trusted Peter, James, and John with what went on at the Mount of Transfiguration? Would you have believed that they would have kept it secret? They apparently did. Well, here's the second part. After hidden, we need to sometimes have something a little more, more upscale. And that is secured. Maybe we're not or unable to hide it. Maybe it just can't be hidden. So it's locked or secured with some degree of an imperviousness. We make it so that people can't get at it. I don't care that it stops me from being able to get at it. I care that it makes it so that it's not easy to get to. People that have put a gun in their home will a lot of times put them into some kind of a safe. They may get one of those safes that has the bio-read technology on it where they can just use their finger, their handprint, something like that, and get into it quickly. But it's important that that stays locked up because they don't want anyone else getting hold of it and hurting themselves or hurting someone else. So we secure it. We do something with it that keeps it secure. I, maybe I can't hide it. Maybe I don't want to hit, hide it, just hide it. I want something that has a little bit more degree of keeping people out. And so we do something, we keep it secure. Not all truth should be hidden. Some of what Jesus, some of what Paul taught got people angry. They didn't hide it. They brought it right out there. Not everything is made to be hidden. Not everything is supposed to be hidden. Some things are okay to be hidden. And that's really all the protection that you need for it. But sometimes, no, it's not a, it's not something that needs to be hidden. You look at a walled city, you look at a prison cell. These are things that are secured. A walled city is secured by gates that have locks. A prison cell is secured with some locks. Your computer may have a code that you have to punch in in order to log into it. Uh, Wi-Fi networks all over the place, they have security codes and you have to know the code in order to be able to get into it. You just don't want anybody being able to to get hold. They're secured. It's a secured feed. You go into a, a mall, you go into a restaurant, and they may have an unsecured Wi-Fi feed that you can get in. You don't need any kind of password for it. But then everybody's on it. And some people don't like doing that because if I get on that network, everybody can technically see my phone, see my device, whatever it is, 
And if they're good, they might be able to access the things that you have on there. And so some folks don't want that. So they don't want to be on an unsecured network. But it's good that you know whether it is or not. Now, access here is granted by yielding the key, the code, or whatever other way bypass the locks. Bypasses the security. The security is on it. can be undone. But there's a security to this thing. In the Word of God, we see this thing with the parables. Jesus spoke it. It was out there in the open. Everybody could hear it. But no one could access the truth without the code. And that code was they had to be hungry and to seek after the truth. If they would be hungry and seek after the truth, the truth would be revealed to them. There are deeper truths in the Word of God. God gives access to by levels. Thereby qualifying people along the way. When you get to this level, all right, now we're going to open up this world to you. And then uh, you get up into the, to the next level. Don't get there right off the bat. Peter didn't get to the place where God is opening up heaven and sharing secrets with him right off the bat. Paul didn't get there either. There were levels. You needed to access this level, level one first. People in the gaming world understand you have to get to level one before you get to level two. You got to get to level two before you get to level three. That's one of the ways that they try and hook you into these things. They want you to be captivated. They want you to have uh, a sense of pride because you got up to level 4,567. So God gives access to truth by levels because truth is progressive. God builds on the truth. Daniel's understanding of the 70 weeks, one of the greatest prophetic messages on end times that we have, the prophecy that he saw this from, it was out there for everybody to read. Isaiah had made this prophecy. It was there. It was, it was plain as you could see. But no one even asked the question for almost 70 years. And then he asked the question, oh, he accessed the code. And the truth was sent. And they came, they opened his, opened his eyes. Well, some of the places where you'll see this are calling. The understanding of our calling, the truth behind what we are called to do, that's secured until we're made ready for it. Remember, um, the Lord even spoke to the prophet before he went over to Paul. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's a future thing. He's not going to know it now, but eventually he's going to know this thing. Our calling is secured until we are made ready for it. That calling's there. The truth about it is there. But until I'm ready for it, it's not shared with me. I don't have the ability to open up that lock. Our inheritance, that awaits our maturity. Paul taught about this in the book of Galatians. In fact, Galatians 4.28 says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was our children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. If you don't cast out the bondwoman, you don't get the things of the free woman. It's a code. These things are secured. They're there for you. And we're not saying how long it's going to be until you tap into that level. But until you get there, that's not available to you. We secure the trust we give to others. How many of y'all know that? 
you don't just extend trust to everybody that you, you see. You may extend a little a basic amount of trust, but the higher levels of trust, you don't you don't share that with everybody. It's secured. We yield it to people. But there's certain things that we're looking for, isn't there? And there are certain things you look for in friendships. Then when you begin to see them, when you begin to feel them, oh, all right, I, I'm feeling better about this. I'll give them access to more of my trust. And you trust them more. Because they've done something. Everybody is different. Everybody has different access codes on what their, on what their trust is. And you know, sometimes a person will do something and say something, and all of a sudden, access denied. No more do I trust you. No, sir, we're pulling that back because uh, you said something, you did something, you betrayed my trust. Some can make their trust so impenetrable, it becomes a hardship for themselves. They won't let anybody in. And they won't yield that to anyone. And they become the one that is hurt the most. With God, the more maturity the valuable requires, the harder it is to access. The things that Moses walked in, not too many people walked in. Not too many people walked in that kind of lifestyle. Not people were that unselfish, that humble. He was. There's the third one. This is the heaviest. Guarded. This is more than secured. A guarded city wall, a prison. A prison cell may be secured, but a prison itself is guarded. You've got people in there watching over it. How about a watched child? Mama or Papa looking over that watched child. They're watching that. There's, there's a guard there. We're not, we're not trusting this to, to hide in the child. We're not trusting this to having a security access code. No. We are standing over that child. We are watching it. If they're on the playground, we're watching them on that playground. If they're in the water swimming, we're watching them in the pool. We're on guard. We put weapons in our homes and our businesses because we are guarding those businesses. We are guarding the home. It is guarded. We may have a security code. We may have a lock on our home. But beside that, we have a guard on the inside. Because we value those things that are there. The temple. Solomon built it with great wealth. There's a whole lot of wealth in that temple that he built. Boy, gold coming out. The, the, the walls are just all over the place with that. But it had guards. It had a walled city. It had temple guards. It had guards on the walls. It had big walls to, to get through. You couldn't hide it. There's no way you could hide the temple. So you had to guard it. Under King Rehoboam, he was a weaker king. It was raided. And a lot of the gold was taken off. You're going to have things of great value. You've got to know great forces are going to try and come against you to get it. This is something big. It's desirable. You've got to guard it. You can't hide it. You can't secure it. Remember the Garden of Eden? That was to be guarded. It wasn't secured by an access code. It wasn't hidden. It was guarded. He, God told Adam, guard it, keep it. They didn't do it. David left his home city and he would go out to war. All 600 men would go out to war. Until the day they came back and they found out that somebody had come and raided their city. Took their wives and their children and all their stuff. He didn't do that anymore. He left the city guarded. So 200 would stay behind and guard the stuff and 400 would go out in the war. The city of Babylon, remember that fell? They had a wall, 
a very big wall. But it was left, instead of a guarded state, to be in a merely a secured state because they had a big party going on. And so a lot of the guarding that would have been done, a lot of the guards were pulled. They didn't even feel it necessary. They felt so confident in their wall that all these people were in there having a party. And Daniel came on out and said, This night, this is required of you. And Babylon fell that night. And we know the stories of history and how they snuck in through the wall found some breaches, but there was no guards. If they simply had some guards on those areas, it would have stopped the invasion. They thought their great walls provided enough security. No, they, they had... The walls gave them a secured presence, but it was not a guarded presence. Remember in Acts 23, we just read it not too long ago in our daily chapters. Paul had 40 men who had vowed that they were going to kill him. And the plot became known to his nephew. His nephew told the commander. And the commander got 200 armed guards to give him a secured trip to get him out of there and to the place where he was going to go next. We have a guard. If you have something of great value, you're going to guard it. What we have there, it's all, everyone can see it. And they want to get it. They want to take it down. They want to destroy it. They want to get it out of the way. A sheepfold, Jesus talks about the sheepfold, it's secured with a fence and a gate. And Jesus even taught that those who would come in any other way beside the gate were thieves, robbers. But people would try to do it. So it was secured with a gate and it was secured with walls. But that was not enough to stop the thief. What did you need to stop the thief? You needed a guard. You needed a shepherd. Guarding the sheepfold was a must. In the New Testament church, that's the role of the pastor. The enemy found a way to get past the guard that Adam and Eve were supposed to provide for the garden and caused them to question God's word. In Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as one through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin. The enemy wanted to get something in. But he had to get through the guard. And he got through the guard and he brought sin into the world and he brought death into the world through sin. First Peter 5 eight: be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You gotta be on guard. There are some things you can hide, there are some things you can secure, but those things of great value you need to guard. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. They didn't guard themselves very well. And they let this be taken over. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. We need to guard our heart. We need to guard it. We need to protect it. If we are not guarding our heart if we are not guarding the things that get on the inside of us then the things that are of value will become less valuable. We may have the Word of God in us, but if we don't, if we don't guard it, we'll be like salt, as Jesus taught, that lost its flavor. We had the Word, we had the truth, but we didn't guard it. We let it become corrupted. We let it become watered down. 
we let it become less than what it was supposed to be because we didn't stand guard. What we received that had great value lost its value because we didn't treat it right. The armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 is made for those who would stand guard. And we are to stand guard. There are some things that you simply need to hide because you need quick access to them. There are some things you need to secure. It's be a step up of just, just hiding them. You need to secure them. There needs to be some kind of access code to it. And there are some things that need to be guarded. God knows that we're in this world and He knows that there are some things that He has given you that you just nearly need to, nearly, merely need to hide. Hide this in your heart. Keep it around there. Keep going over it. Keep going over it. Know it so that you can go out there and you can find it. Some things you need to secure. You need to make it a little bit more difficult to go and get it. Maybe that's inconvenient for you. But you need to make sure. Don't just trust everything. Don't uh, test the spirits, the Word of God says. Don't just trust every spirit that's speaking something. Test them. Because some of them want to bring you some harmful things. Make them more secure. And some things, we need to all out guard. When we were unsaved, we didn't have things of spiritual value. We didn't have to guard. It didn't matter. But now you have things that have some great spiritual value. Because of it, people are out there to get it. Here in this story, Tobiah, he's only interested in Israel having a walled city of Jerusalem. He didn't care about the other cities. He's not an enemy to those cities having a walled city. He's against Israel having a walled city. He's against them building a temple. He's against them having stuff, having a city that looks like it's valuable. The enemy does not want you to have things that look valuable. He's going to try and put those things down to the world that's around you. Get you to be despised. Get you to be laughed at. But you make sure that you hide what you need to hide, secure what you need to secure, and guard what you need to guard. Not everything can be hidden. And you are not called to hide everything from the world. Jesus didn't hide everything. Paul didn't hide everything. People got mad at him for it. People will get mad at you for it. Daniel didn't hide who he was. People got mad at him for it. You don't have to hide everything. But there are some things don't bring out. There are some things you just need to have a secure access code. And there are some things you need to guard because the enemy is going to try and come and take them away. This is how we ought to walk. This is how Nehemiah was. Nehemiah knew. It's important that we take this to the next level. If we're going to go to the next level, then we have to not just have a city. We need to have a secured city. We need to have a city that we can guard. And once we do that, then we can have some things of value. And that's what we'll begin to see the next time we get together is some of the things that he's trying to do to bring some value to the city. So, Father, we thank you that you help us in the things that you gave us that are valuable, to see their value and to access things of greater value. 
to guard the things we have that the world wants to take away and the enemy wants to compromise. But we'll stand guard on that truth. We'll stand guard on that calling. And we won't let it falter. Thank you for the things that you lead us into. We give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.